Good morning again. Merry Christmas. No? Is it, is it still Christmas? Who, who says it's still Christmas? Who says it's not Christmas anymore? No, so this is, this is interesting because um, there, there's debates, right, on both ends of the, of the schedule. When does Christmas start and when does it end? And I find it interesting that we push it, we want to push it further and further, sooner and sooner in the year, right? But we also seem to be in a rush for it to be over. Because technically, it lasts 12 days. There's even a whole song about it. But the, most of us, the only reason we know that some people think it lasts 12 days is because of the song, right? For most of us, it's a day, and then we, we try and kind of put it behind us. And we go back to the normal, the normal world. And, and usually if you're, you know, by New Year's Day, that's kind of like, that's a new holiday, so that's a clean break and we're into something different. And part of what I want to talk about today is why, why are we in such a rush to be done with Christmas? Um, Twelve days of Christmas sounds awesome to me, and we're barely, you know, we're at eight. Last until the, the fifth is the last day of Christmas, and then Epiphany is on the sixth. And I think it's because, I think the reason why we're in a rush to get over Christmas is for a couple of reasons. One of them is because it takes a lot out of us to behave like Christmas for a whole month, right? If you're trying to force it, if you're trying to do it out of sheer willpower, a month is a really long time to treat people with goodwill, right? And to lay aside your, your issues. And so we just run out of steam when you're trying to force it which should be a great reminder to us of why we need Jesus, because you can't force it for more than a month. But I think, and I think actually that, that, that the fact that we start to wear out after Christmas, when we realize that, that gives us another reason to try and move on and kind of forget about Christmas. Because I think that the time right after Christmas has its own unique challenge. And I've titled this sermon, For the Time Being, uh, after a poem. I quoted it, I think, on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's a long poem by a guy named W.H. Auden that's all about the Christmas story. And the title comes from the last part of the poem about after Christmas. And I'm going to read you part of it because one of the reasons I love this poem is it seems to cap encapsulate the after Christmas feeling so well. He says, Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree, putting the decorations back in their cardboard boxes, some have got broken, and carrying them up to the attic. The holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and the children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do warmed up for the rest of the week. Not that we have much appetite, having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all our relatives, and in general, grossly overestimated our powers." Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility. Once again, we have sent him away begging, sent him away, begging to remain his disobedient servant, the promising child who cannot keep his word for long. The streets are much narrower than we remembered. We had forgotten the office was as depressing as this. To those who have seen the child, however dimly, however incredulously, the time being is, in a sense, the most trying time of all. 
I think the reason why the season right after Christmas is hard is because we realize Christmas is how we're supposed to just be all the time, right? It points us in the direction of the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to love each other regardless of the season. We're supposed to show goodwill toward each other. We're supposed to set aside our conflicts regardless of the season. And then we force it for a month, and we've realized, especially if you've caught a glimpse of the vision, that's Jesus, you recognize that that's what it's supposed to be all the time. And you start to run out of steam, and all of a sudden we want to kind of forget about that. Because we, we want to forget our experience of the way life is supposed to be. Because we are stuck living in the time being. We know that Jesus is coming back, but for the time being, we have to live in this world. What does it look like to live in this world? What does it look like to hold on to the vision that we've seen in Christmas, the vision that we've been talking about for the last month, when we don't have the decorations and the music and the general supportive atmosphere to encourage us to live that way. In a way, I think it's the season after Christmas that is more important than Christmas itself. In a way, I think it's the season after Christmas that tells us whether that Christmas was successful or not. Because it shows us whether something has changed because of our encounter with Jesus. So what I want to talk about today is how should things be different? How should we be different because we've seen the vision, because we've encountered Jesus? And there's a great passage for that. It's actually my favorite Christmas passage. I always come back to it every December, and you've probably heard me talk about it a couple of times over past years. It's actually in a strange place. It's in the book of Titus. And here's what it says. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, or for the time being, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This passage, Paul tells us that the grace of God has appeared for a reason. It is doing something now in this present age while we wait for the coming of Jesus, for the culmination of all this, for Jesus to set all things right. It tells us exactly what God is doing in us in this present age, both in us as individuals and at the end of the passage, it tells us what God is doing with us as a church, what Jesus is doing with his people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this in chunks and we're going to look at what is God looking to do in us through the grace that has appeared through Jesus Christ. How is he working in us for the time being in this present age? And it starts with this statement. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, there's an interesting thing going on in Christianity, and, and to make a very long history lesson very short, for about 1,500 years, Christians agreed that being a Christian, in large part, a big part of being a Christian, meant Self-discipline, self-control. It meant getting rid of sin and putting aside the passions that, um, that led us astray. Then the Protestant Reformation happened and things started to get a little muddled because we, people had gone too far in one direction to think, well, I'm only saved if I've made a certain level of progress in that battle. And that got convoluted. And so we said, no, you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by 
how much victory you've had over sin. You're actually saved by the grace and generosity of Jesus, which is true. But somehow the baby in large degree went out with that bathwater where uh, I have known people who have said to me, I became a Christian the day I stopped trying to be a better person and just relied on the grace of Jesus. Now that's a distortion of what the Bible actually tells us because the Bible talks a lot about us being changed as people by the grace of Jesus. In this verse, it tells us that the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus is teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So for the time being, God is teaching us to resist ungodly passions. If you are a human being with a body, then you have passions. You are a person of passion. And those passions were put there by God, and they have an appropriate level, they have an appropriate use, an appropriate purpose. Yet, being people of passion, we, are, we tend to get sucked into them. And it's possible for us to pursue those passions to the wrong degree, in the wrong way. It's possible for us to let those become our God and serve our passions instead of our Savior. Your passions, your desires, are one of the most, uh, are the, the consistently the thing the Bible talks the most about as a danger to you if they get out of control. And so we find in Scripture, many lists, especially in the New Testament, of those kinds of behaviors and what it looks like when your passions run away with you. In Galatians 5, Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The people who are controlled by those passions, who serve those passions instead of God, are going down the wrong road. They are serving the wrong master. And so being a Christian means serving Christ, and, it, and the work of being a Christian, and what God is doing with us in this age, is to take us away from those, serving those passions into serving him. Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever, bring, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. In 2 Timothy, Paul warns uh, Timothy that in in the later days, people will begin behaving this way. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. I just want to take a second and pull out some repeating themes in those passages. The kinds of things that we see um, uh, ungodly passions, the signs of, of uh, being pulled astray by our passions. The first one that comes up a lot, probably stood out to you, is sexual immorality. Our sexual appetites are one of our greatest weaknesses. It's one of the easiest ways for us to be pulled aside and to serve our appetite. When we are when we give in to desires to um, when we give in to sexual desire outside of the design that God has given to us, that is we end up serving it, and it's an easy way for us to be taken over. And that was probably the one that stood out to you, very likely, because that's the one we talk a lot about. That's the one that gets a lot of headlines. Is is how um, how we view sexual immorality. 
But hopefully, a lot of these others stood out to you as well, such as greed and idolatry, which in the, in the New Testament is consistently treated as the same thing. If you are a person who is consumed with desire for money, who is consumed with desire for objects, that's idolatry. That means that you are coming to serve a different God other than the one who made you. But you, perhaps this one stood out to you even less, but it's just as consistent. Divisiveness and rebelliousness. Divisiveness meaning creating conflict or making conflicts bigger, making conflicts worse, um, being eager to participate in divisions. That's, that's consistently a vice that we see in those lists. Also rebelliousness, which is a, an American virtue, right? To push back against authority and to stand for yourself. But actually, in, in the New Testament, standing for yourself is not a virtue in of itself. Only if you're right. If you're wrong, there's nothing good about standing up for yourself or, or being rebellious. Um, and so the idea that, you know, that impulse to just go my own way and push back against anyone who tell me what to do, that's not actually a virtue in the Bible. Anger and malice, the common theme, and unforgiveness. Not forgiving, which again is one of those rights that we hold on to. I have the right to decide when and if I'm going to forgive somebody. Actually, if you're not forgiving, then in the biblical view, you are being controlled by a passion, an ungodly passion. That is something that makes you less like God than you can be, and than you should be. Another famous list that's been used in history, if you were here in early 2020, we did a sermon series through the seven deadly sins. These are just seven common sins that, that ancient Christians found they faced a lot. They were the tops, on their top seven lists. Pride, anger, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, sloth. And the reason I'm going through these lists is as, as you are looking at your year and, um, and looking at how should I be different because I have met Jesus, these are some very practical things. One of our goals to, in being different because we met Jesus is to say no to our ungodly passions. So maybe you saw a couple up there that made you wince. I tell you, I, the one that makes me wince right now is gluttony. I preached a sermon on gluttony, and then I spent the next year losing quite a bit of weight because of how convicted I feel. But here's the thing. I lost weight. I'm still controlled by that appetite. I just have gotten better at working it off so, it doesn't, so that you don't see the difference, but I still, I still really struggle with that one. I've actually made a New Year's resolution about that one, not because I need to get a certain figure, but because I don't want to be controlled by that. I don't want to keep realizing, ah, I did it again. Now I got to work out even harder. I got to do this because I couldn't say no. So if you see something on there that you're like, no, that, that's the one that gets me. Maybe that's God saying, hey, let's work on this one this year. This is the place where I want to change you. But it's not just about getting rid of bad things in your life. That's kind of the negative side of the conversation where you feel guilty because you realize this negative thing is in your life and it shouldn't be. But it also says in Titus that the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That it teaches us to not just get rid of bad things, but take on good things. Right? The grace of God, and, and part of what makes the good news good, is that it is now possible for you to take on virtues that would have been impossible by your own strength. If you're feeling worn out from trying to pretend to, to be nice throughout all of Christmas, 
Jesus is actually wanting to change you so you don't have to try so hard to do that. You can take on those virtues that you wish you had. So for the time being, God is teaching us to lead godly lives, to take on godly behaviors. And that is an opportunity that we have. Because when the Bible lists um, vices, it also tends to list virtues as opportunities for who we can be instead. Because being a Christian is not just about not doing bad things. That's the mindset we often have as well. I haven't killed anybody, so I'm good enough for God. But God's not just interested in people who don't do bad things. God wants us to be actively participating in his kingdom, actively participating in his, in his agenda, in building his kingdom. So here's what that looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That's not just a, a good memory verse for kids' programs. It's also a good, uh, it's a good inventory for us to check ourselves against, which is actually why it's a good one for kids, is because we can teach them that same inventory. How many of the fruit of the Spirit are you bearing? Where do you see them coming out in your lives? What opportunities do you have to bear more of that kind of fruit? Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Peter gives us, I know I'm giving these quickly to you, I put them in your outline so that you can go home and mull over them. That's the goal. I want you to go home, look these up for yourselves, mull over them, think over them, pray over them. But Peter also gives us a good list. He says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that you can be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? But Peter gives us this ladder to climb, this, this list, this inventory for us to work on, to work on the kinds of virtues that make us productive as followers of Jesus. In fact, this idea that there are things for us to work on, there are traits for us to take on, is so important that it's how Jesus started his most famous sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus thought... These kinds of lists were important, and, these, and taking on virtues was important. He talked about it a lot. And again, we can pull out just a few themes that come out of these. Humility. Humility is, a, is an important virtue. In fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin worked on virtues. He did this very systematically. He like, would t- make, choose a virtue, work on it until he mastered it, and move on to the next one, or at least until he thought he mastered it. I don't know if he really did. But he said that humility was the hardest one, because once he got it down, he couldn't tell anyone. I thought that was pretty funny too. 
Humility is a very important and very consistently emphasized theme in the New Testament. We talked last week about how that's one of the ways we emulate Jesus. Jesus is our model in humility. Compassion is a very important theme. Having a heart that that feels other people's pain and cares about other people's pain. Self-control. This is why things that aren't spiritual vices are still important things for us to work on. You know, like, I don't know that my, um, my struggles with my appetite are a spiritual thing. I, I, like, the food itself is a spiritual thing. But the fact that I don't have the self-control to say no to that simple, that basic um, appetite, um, that's a problem for all the other appetites that I have to say no to. You know, so just in general, having self-control, being able to say no to things is a virtue, is a good thing to have. Forgiveness. If unforgiveness is a vice, then forgiveness is a virtue that we need to practice. We need to be intentional about, am I, am I forgiving people? We say it in, uh, every week in the Lord's Prayer. Here's a really, really important one that we forget about a lot, or we willfully ignore, probably. Forbearance means putting up with each other. When you would rather not. See, we have, we have invented so many things and done so many things in our uh, society to make it possible for us to choose our companions and to choose the people we spend time with, right? That's why we build bigger cities. That's why we have so much communication technology. Like we want to be able to be selective about our friends and who we spend time with so we don't have to spend time with people we don't like, which inherently divides our communities and makes it impossible for us to love each other and talk, even talk to each other. Have you noticed that? Forbearance means putting up with people that you would maybe prefer not to spend time with. You know, being willing to continue to be a part of a church, for instance, where not everything is exactly the way you would want it. You know, spending time with your neighbors simply because they're your neighbors, even if they vote differently than you or look differently than you or play music at different times than you, like that's forbearance. And that is something that God wants us to practice intentionally. It's not, it's not a gift in the sense that some people have it and some people don't. It's, it's a virtue that we're supposed to practice. And do you notice the climax of all of those passages? What is the one that tops the list? The virtues we're supposed to practice. Do you remember? Did you notice it? Love. Over all of these, practice love. For us, love is a command. Not a gift that some people have and some people don't. It's a command. If you're looking at the seven deadly sins, their counterpoint is the seven capital virtues. Humility, patience, kindness, charity, temperance, chastity, and diligence. So again, hopefully, as you look at these, you see, you know, that's a virtue that I really should have. I really want to be that kind of person. And I'm not just going to say I wish I was. I'm actually going to work on being that kind of person. I'm going to work with Jesus. I'm going to be in prayer asking God to change me in that way. I'm going to take steps to, to work on that. The same way if you would set a, a resolution for a certain number on the scale, you would do the work to get there. Maybe you see something here that, that gets your attention. The last part of this passage is something that's, that's for the congregation. In a way, it's, it, he turns his attention to the congregation or to the church. He says, this is what God is doing in all of us while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, 
eager to do what is good. So he tells us we're waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, the, the Jesus who gave himself for the purpose of creating a group of people that have this particular trait. It says, eager to do what is good. In fact, in the Greek, it's good works. For the time being, Jesus is creating a people who are eager to do good works. We find this mentality in Ephesians where he says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is the reason why he brings us together in church. This is why organized religion is a good thing when it's organized around Jesus and, and, has, and, and actually is moving in a direction. is because Christ himself gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We gather together as a church so that we can be mature as a body of people dedicated to doing good works, to doing work in the, the kind of work in the world that God wants done. Now, what are those good works? What does God want us to do in the world? Well, how long do you have? We could read the whole Bible out loud as an answer. But, thankfully, there are a couple of places in the New Testament where we are given a, the Cliff Notes version. The Cliff Notes version of the good works that God wants us to do. Paul says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what are the good works that we're supposed to do? Well, you could end up with an infinite list of what that looks like. But the summary is, doing good works means loving your neighbor as yourself. So our church is called to be a family of people who mature together in the art of loving our neighbors as ourselves and of loving God with everything we have. The thing is, becoming that kind of a person requires training and discipline. One of the problems that we run into if we go to the wrong direction down the we're saved by grace pathway, is to say we're saved by grace and that means whatever God's going to do, he's going to do without my participation. And that's not how it works. After all, Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. And what he's saying there is it's fine for me to be preaching to other people what, how God wants them to live, but I also need to be working on it in myself. I need to take control of my body. I need to be in control of who I am so that I don't preach all, to other people the way to become like Christ and miss the target myself. Being like Christ, being who God calls us to be, means, requires discipline. It requires commitment. It requires us to participate in what God is doing. Think of it this way. God, Jesus has given you the surgery you couldn't pay for that you didn't deserve. But if you want to be who God called you to be, you have to do the physical therapy. Right? 
He reset your broken leg, but you can't dance on it unless you do your physical therapy. And he didn't heal your leg so you could spend your life in a chair. He healed you because he loves the way you dance. So we have to do the physical therapy. We have to do the work to become the people that we are able to be because we've been transformed by Jesus, because we've been freed from sin. I love the, the metaphor that we got during the, uh, the communion meditation because you know who uh, was actually freed the moment he signed that document? Practically, nobody. They had the ability to be free, but they still had to win the war. So like, it didn't literally free a single person in that moment until, those, until the people who were held in slavery were actually freed. It's, there is work to do as we are freed from sin. So, as a congregation, we have a New Year's resolution. I'm letting you know, the elders and I have talked about it, we have a New Year's resolution for 2023. Our New Year's resolution is to be a congregation of people who love their neighbors as we love ourselves. That is our focus in 2023. We are going to be a people who love our neighbors. We live in a town that styles itself a good neighbor town. The good neighbor town. Who should be the best neighbors in that town? To be the people who serve a God who's commanded them to love their neighbors, right? So we are going to focus on what it means to love our neighbors. Next week, we're going to start into a sermon series that has no end date. We'll see how long, how, how it goes how, and where it'll move after that. The Holy Spirit's going to be involved and lead us in directions that I probably can't anticipate. But we're going to start looking at what it means to love our neighbors. And then the Sunday after that, there's no Sunday school next week, but the Sunday after that, we are going to start a Sunday school class uh, for the whole church for three weeks. We're going to get together in the fellowship hall for three weeks, and we're going to talk as a congregation about the art of neighboring, about what it looks like for us to love our neighbors. Because here's the thing, we're not launching new programs where the church is going to get together and love your neighbors. Your neighbors already have someone around them to love them. That's you. And we're going to talk about how we can equip you to love your neighbors and me to love my neighbors. And then after those are done, we're going to start our spring Sunday school, Sunday uh, small groups, and we're going to spend the spring, we're just going to have small groups meeting on Sunday morning that are going to work through two books on loving our neighbors. First one is going to be The Art of Neighboring. So through the sermons through the Sunday classes, and then if you're in one of our small groups, you're talking about the sermons, which means all of that is going to be focused on what it looks like for us to love our neighbors, to love our community, because that's what the church is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be maturing as people who are, in, who are loving our neighbors. So that's the congregation's New Year's resolution. But this passage isn't just about what God is doing in the congregation. Remember, it started out by talking about what God is doing in individual lives. So my challenge to you is, what are you going to do for a New Year's resolution? I don't know if you do them, and it, there's nothing magic about New Year's resolutions. You can do this anytime, and you can do this in, in any way. As we commit to following Jesus, we actually ask you to invite you to make a resolution every single Sunday. This isn't different. I'm just calling it New Year's because it's New Year's. But what will it look like for you to commit to the way God wants you to be changed? What vices will you reject? What virtues will you practice? 
To put a finer point on it, how will you be different because Jesus is born? Because what we've learned as we've been talking about Christmas over the past month is that the people who, uh, what makes Christmas matter is when people hear the call of God and they respond to it and they have an encounter with Jesus that transforms them. If you've encountered Jesus, you have an opportunity to be transformed by that. Now, I am not leading from the, I am not calling you all to follow me. I am right in this with you. Okay? I am making resolutions about how I need to be transformed, how I, you know, I feel convicted as I read those passages. So please don't feel that this is a guilt trip from the pastor who's got it figured out. I am part of this body that is maturing and learning together, and we're going to figure this out together. But I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to do this, right? Where else can you go and find out that there is hope for us to be transformed beyond what you are personally capable of? Where else do we have hope like what Jesus Christ gives us that we can be changed and we can be the people we were designed to be? This is an amazing opportunity. This is a joyous thing. And I am really excited to be going on this journey together with you. I think God has some amazing things that he's going to do through us in the communities we live in. Amen? So...